Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team here in the seventh inning the Yankees are trailing two nothing that is the key man hit high in the air to left field going to the corner Yaspinski it's over the wall it's a home run for Bucky Dent Yankees get the lead three two Deep to left, Yastrzemski will not get it, it's a home run! A three-run home run for Bucky Denton, the Yankees now lead it by a score of three to two. Well, the last guy on the ball club, you'd expect to hit a home run, just hit one into the screen, Bucky Denton. Hi everyone, I'm Bucky Dent. welcome to this week's episode of Deep to Left with Bucky Dent. We have a really special show for you today. We have a guy that I played against for 10 years with the Baltimore Orioles, and now he's one of the voices of the New York Yankees, and I'm talking about Ken Singleton, one of the top-notch class guys. But before we get to him, we have on the line with me my partners, Al Santaseri, the editor-in-chief of the Yankees Magazines, and we have John Schwartz the Yankees Magazine Deputy Editor. Hi, guys. Glad to have you on, and we got a great guest today, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking to him. Yeah, hi, Bucky and John. I'm looking forward to it as well. He's a great guy, and we're just really fortunate to have some time with him today. For sure. You know, I, I, for one, as much as anything else, I'm also really excited to watch him talking about baseball on the Yes Network soon enough, so that's pretty exciting that we seem to be, hopefully, fingers crossed, getting closer. Well, let's get him on the line and start talking to him, guys. Let's go. Ken Singleton, man, I'm so glad to have you on our show today. Say hello to John and Al. What's going on, Ken? Hey, Ken, how you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, nice to talk to you. And certainly to you, Bucky. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's been a while. But, man, I've, I've been wanting to talk to you because uh, – you know, you, you've been one of the guys that, you know, I played against, you know, uh, watching now on TV and you, you had a, a tremendous career. And you know what's fun about doing this show? And, and I'm not really great at it yet, but, you know, when you start doing and digging into to different statistics and looking at guys' careers and things like that, you come up with some interesting stuff. And I just realized that you lived in Ralph Branca's house. I didn't know that. That's correct. Uh, when I was uh, seven years old, my dad uh, bought the house from Ralph and his family, and uh, uh, that's basically the house I grew up in New York, uh, Mount Vernon, New York, which is uh, just north of the Bronx. And um, when I was in uh, my teenage years, 
actually I played in the Bronx Federation League because there was better competition down there. And it was it was only about a half hour, 40 minutes from my home. And uh, we would play in the various uh, fields around uh, the Bronx and also just outside of Yankee Stadium at Bakunstan Park. So it was uh, uh, we played doubleheader Saturday, doubleheader Sunday. Uh, there were more scouts in that area. And um, uh, I got to uh, play in front of a lot of different scouts for different teams. Uh, mostly the Braves and the Twins, and eventually, uh, you know, I was drafted by the Mets, which was uh, sort of my hometown team. My dad was very happy about that. Were you a Yankee fan? You know, I, I really wasn't. I, I, I kind of really, I enjoyed watching the Yankees because they were so good. Those were the days of Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris and the rest of those great, great teams. Uh, Yogi, of course, and I mentioned Roger Maris, Elston Howard, uh, great teams. But my favorite player was Willie Mays, so I was a Giant fan. And although they were out on the West Coast, it was kind of hard to follow them back in those days. It's, it's not like it is now where you can watch any game at any time. Uh, I had to you know, get the afternoon paper to find out what happened in the box scores to, to my favorite player, Willie Mays. So you got, you got drafted to, uh, out of Hofstra. That's correct. Yeah, uh, what, 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 is, uh, what took you to Hofstra? I mean, how, how did you get to Hofstra? Yeah, it's interesting, Buck, because uh, I played basketball at Mount Vernon High School, and Mount Vernon over the years has become uh, notable for uh, high school basketball. I think uh, they have uh, won nine state championships. Now, when I was playing, uh, the the furthest you could go was a county championship, but I guess they figured out they could make more money if they expanded it, and uh, Mount Vernon has become sort of a national power in basketball, and uh, so... We were pretty good back in the day, and uh, I got a basketball scholarship, of all things, to play uh, basketball at Hofstra. Uh, in those years, you could only, the freshman, it was a freshman team, you couldn't play on the varsity. And uh, our freshman team went 20-4. and four. We had a really good team. But, wow. Yeah, I considered myself a baseball player. Baseball was always my first love. And uh, eventually, uh, the Mets drafted me number one, and that kind of sealed the deal. I, I decided to leave school and go play ball. You were a third pick in the draft that year, weren't you? Yeah, I was. Uh, I think I was third overall, uh, just in front of Carlton Fisk. Now, in those years, they had two drafts. They had one in June, and they had one in January. And ours was a January draft. Uh, so it, maybe there weren't as many players available. But uh, to be picked in the top five, or certainly third overall, was a, a pretty good deal. And uh, it was also a big deal because I was drafted by a hometown team and uh, eventually made it to the Mets in uh, about three years and two months, which is uh, relatively a pretty quick uh, a quick amount of time. When you play for your hometown team, the phone never stops ringing, and uh, you know everybody wants to come to you. <laughs> yeah. It's a little difficult at, at, at times, but I got used to it, uh, at least for a little while, and then I got traded to Montreal. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize I was in that, you know, secondary, what they called it, a secondary draft also. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, if you didn't sign out of high school, you know, you went in that draft and, and I got drafted by the Cardinals and I twice out of high school and by them in January and I didn't sign and I wound up signing with the White Sox. But, uh -huh. uh, yeah, I, I made it, I think, in three years also. But I was listening to you and Jim Palmer. My wife actually brought up a clip and he was joking around with you saying that uh, – 
you know, they were getting on, you know, the one scout was watching you and said you'd like had a below average arm and, <laughs> and, and this and that. And uh, I was just chuckling. I said, I said, he didn't have a below average arm. He led the freaking league in assists one year with 21. And he was dangerous <laughs> in the outfield when he picked up the ball. But yeah, I, I got a, a real chuckle out of that one. Well, you know, I did lead the league one year in assists, but there, there were some outfielders back in the day that had some really good throwing arms. You, you, you think of Dave Winfield, you know, Ellis Valentine, or Reggie threw the ball pretty well. And there were others. I, I'm sure I'm forgetting a few, uh, but th there were some good uh, defensive right fielders who could uh, really get the ball back in. You, if you were going first to third, you really had to think about it. Yeah, Dwight Evans, the Red Sox. You know what? But I don't know about you, but I think he's one of the most underrated players from uh, our era and uh, certainly deserves more credit than um, what he has gotten over the years. And I think it's because he was on teams with Fisk and Jim Rice and, and Carl Yastrzemski, you know, all Hall of Famers. But I, I think Dewey Evans might have been the best right fielder in the league. I do too. I mean, he could throw and he was scary. When, you, when, when you're on first base and somebody hit the ball right field, you had to think twice about, about going to third. But you're right. You, you I, had I, to be sure. You had to, you had to be sure. Um, and you, you, you started out with the Mets, and then you got traded over uh, to Montreal in that old, was it Jerry Park field? Yeah. Oh, uh, Lord. The day I got traded, uh, of course, I'd been playing for my hometown team, and my mom was, you know, she was crying. She was crying to my dad that, oh, we'll never see him play again and all this sort of thing. And my dad was a little more practical. He said, well, look, he's going to go to Montreal, and he's going to play every single day. They were more or less an expansion team. And uh, my dad said, we're going to find out what type of ball player you really are. Of course, he was right. Uh, going up to Montreal and play, one thing I remember, uh, it was really, really cold. I, I just, uh, uh, we never opened, I was there for three years, we never opened the season at home. We always had to be on the road because it was just too cold to start the season. Jerry Park was an outdoor stadium. It would, <laughs> I, I it was a good thing I was a young man because if it was now, I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't hack it. You know, it was just uh Fans would stand beyond the right field wall on snowbanks and watch the game early in the year. And, of course, as the weather got warmer, the snow would melt, and eventually they'd have to pay their way into the, into Jerry Park to see the games. What was the excitement and, the, and kind of the fan support in Montreal like compared to other cities you played in? Yeah, it, it, they were happy to have a team uh, just to be a major league city and uh, kind of be put on the map. Uh, of course, the, the team wasn't very good. Uh, I think the closest we got to uh, to winning was 80, uh, 73, wow, 73. And uh, uh, we were in the race until about the last nine or ten games of the season. And uh, then we kind of fell off at the end. But the fans were enthusiastic. Eventually that, that kind of wore down. They, they, they got, uh, over the years, their teams became much better. And they had some really good teams but they never were able to put it over the top, whether it was losing to the Dodgers in the playoffs or losing to the Pirates during the regular season. And then what happened, uh, I was broadcasting up there uh, when the strike hit in 94. And to me, they had the best team in baseball that year. Olympic Stadium was packed just about every single game. But of course, uh, the strike came. They canceled the season, canceled the World Series. And uh, the people in Montreal thought that they just wouldn't come back after that. They thought it was kind of a conspiracy against Montreal Expos to make the World Series. Hmm. Well, I, I have to say, if, if that wasn't a conspiracy against the Expos, there were plenty of things yeah, that happened in well, the years after down, that. Yeah, it went downhill from there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean. And uh, eventually yeah. the team moved uh, 
uh, of course, to Washington, and they won the World Series last year. Well, I was coaching. I was coaching with the Cardinals in '94, mm-hmm. and you're right. Montreal had a tremendous team. I thought they were the best team in the National League. Yeah. I mean, you talk about three guys in the outfield. They had Larry Walker, Marquise Grissom, and Moises Alou. Yeah. And I was coaching third base. I used to actually get chills when somebody would hit a ground ball to the outfield. <laughs> I was, had a guy on second base. Yeah. It's the first time I ever got a guy thrown out at at, at home plate with nobody with nobody out. Um, I think uh, Mark Whitten was on second, and he somebody hit a ground ball just to the left of the shortstop. And I'm figuring, okay, Grissom ain't gonna throw this, get a chance to throw this guy out because he's moving moving to his right. Well, I was wrong. I looked up, he threw the ball, and I just turned my back and started walking to the outfield. <laughs> and, and he threw him out. It was a bang bang play, and I looked in the dugout, and Joe was Joe Torrey was looking at me, and I was like, like shaking my head, like, okay, I'm guilty, you know. But let's let's fast forward now. You got traded to Baltimore, yep. and uh, I always wanted to ask you, you know, what it was like playing for Earl Weaver because <laughs> we both played for two explosive managers. I played for Billy, and you played for Weaver, and I used to get a kick out of him. I mean, I, I really did. They both were fun because it seemed – I don't know how you remember it, Bucky, but I remember if one would go out and argue with the umpires, the other would be out there within an inning or two. They, they wouldn't want <laughs> to exactly give the edge right. to the other. <laughs> Um, You're exactly right. Yeah, Earl was uh, – he, he was obviously the best manager ever played for. I, his winning percentage is better than any manager since World War II. I think it's 583. You know, he had five 100-win teams. I played on two of them. In fact, one of the years we won 100, and your Yankees won 103. We went home. There was no, there was no wild card in those days, unfortunately. So we, we went home. But uh, I think that was 1980. Earl was – he was an in-your-face type of guy. If, if you did something wrong, there was no talking about it tomorrow. He would wait for you when you came off the field, and he would let you have it and embarrass you in front of everybody. So you, you didn't matter who you were, except uh, there was one exception to that rule. I never saw him yell at Eddie Murray, never once. Hmm. And uh, Wow. Uh, it, one night, uh, Eddie tried to steal third with two outs in the ninth inning and got thrown out. And I thought, well, this is going to be the night that Eddie's finally going to get it. Uh, and he called Eddie into the <laughs> office, and everybody was kind of listening at the door. And he kept Eddie in there for 10 seconds, didn't say anything, then told him to get out. <laughs> and we couldn't, we couldn't believe that he didn't scream at him. And from that point on, we, we always used to kid Eddie that he was Earl's Earl's son. And uh, <laughs> Uh, that, 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 um, you know, he would, he would never yell at him. Now, he, he got me a few times. He got me in Chicago once for uh, dropping a fly ball. It was an easy fly ball. I just dropped it. The White Sox didn't even score. And I came back to the dugout. I felt good that they didn't score. But here he came, and he started yelling me on the bench. He said, what are you doing out there? And I said, Earl, I got no excuse. I dropped the ball. They didn't score. So there, there should be no problem here. He said, yeah, there is a problem. You look bad in front of 30,000 people. I said, I don't want to do that. And then he, he started in a little bit more, and I said, "Earl, I got to hit this inning." And he, <laughs> then he thought of, he said, "Oh, that's that's important. Okay, go ahead." <laughs> Bucky, did uh, did Billy have anybody that that he didn't yell at at all? Was there anybody that was exempt, like Eddie Murray, on on your clubs with Billy? Um, no, Billy would would say things. You know, he he was very vocal in the dugout. You know, I mean, he he would show his emotions and stuff like that. I, I think I told you the story when I dropped when I got traded over to New York in '77. First time we played Boston, we're playing on national TV, and somebody stole second, and 
I went to make the tag and Thurman threw a strike and I dropped it and I look in the dugout and Billy's throw, pulling bats out of a rack, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> oh boy, I'm not going in that side of the dugout, kind of like what you did, Ken. I went down to the other end, but he didn't say anything, you know, but uh, he was very vocal, uh, but he didn't, I don't remember him, you know, other than the fight with Reggie in Boston in the dugout really getting in anybody's face. I mean, he would say things, but um, no, he, he, but he was just fiery, man. He, he was really into the game and and like Ken said, when we played the Orioles, he was not going to let Earl get up, get one up on him. If Earl went out, he was going to go out, kick dirt and do whatever he had to do. But, uh, you know, I, I was always interested in what guys would say about playing for Earl Weaver. I also want to ask you guys, you know, I've heard different stories of whether Earl and Billy got along or didn't get along. What's the what's your understanding of their relationship? Well, I know they were very competitive. Uh you know, they both had very good teams. They were capable of uh, winning a World Series. And uh, like I said before, only one team's going to win the division and go to the playoffs. <laughs> I can remember when Billy was in Oakland uh, managing the A's, and it was the split season, 1981, and the A's had clinched the first half. And we went out there to start the second half, and Earl called Billy from the dugout and <laughs> said to him before the game, must be nice to know you're going to the playoffs and we're just halfway through the season. <laughs> and uh, you know, Billy was kidding him. And, of course, uh, we had a very good record. I, I, I think that year, if the uh, season had halted like two or three games earlier in the first half, we were in first place. But I think we lost our last two or three games before the, uh, they actually stopped and we dropped out of first. You know, we didn't even have a chance, and we finished second in both halves. And we, I think if you combine our records, we had the best record. So it, it's sort of a, a season that was – you know, totally upside down. You know, the, the 81 season is a good jumping off point, I think, to talk a little bit about what we're about to start seeing right now. You mm -hmm. know, the fact of the matter is, assuming everything goes as normal and they do get in all 60 games and they do get a World Series, everything about 2020 is going to look weird. But you guys experienced 1981, and, and I'm assuming yeah. you don't think there's anything weird in retrospect about saying that the Dodgers were the champions that year, right? I mean, a season's a season? Is that is that fair to say? Seasons a season, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, like '81, you know, we played in the All Star game together in '81 in Cleveland, and we started right up afterwards. And yeah, I mean, you know, 60 games or whatever, you know, it's going to be a sprint. And you know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Your thoughts about that, uh, Kenny? Uh, you know, 60 games on how they're going to use their pitchers and relievers and yeah. all these extra guys sitting on the bench and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I believe that, you know, 60 is 60. You win, you win. Yeah, I, I do too. Uh, although you, you got to admit, this is going to be a strange year. I, I, <laughs> yeah. You, there's no such thing as having losing streaks. If you lose three in a row, I mean, that might be uh, over a regular season, like losing seven or eight in a row. So I, I it's, you got to come out of the gates firing. You know, nowadays, more so than in the past, players get days off. I, I don't think uh, managers can afford to give their best players the days off now. It, this is definitely a sprint. You got to go. I'll yeah. even throw another thing at you guys because if you think about it, this year, you know, say what you will about the Mets. Uh, you know, they're, on paper, their pitching staff looks good and, you know, they should have some mm -hmm. hitting, whatever. The Yankees are going to be playing 10% of their schedule this year against the Mets. The Rays, who are probably the second best AL East team, are going to be playing 10% of their games this year against the Marlins. I mean, that's just yeah. a huge difference. <laughs> it's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, it, yeah. It, that, that's the breakdown. Although I will say this, I think the Marlins are improved over last I, year. I, I agree with you there for sure. But I mean, yeah, at the same time. They've picked up some players, but you, you're right. 
Um, overall, the American League East and the National League East, there's some very good teams in both those divisions. The fact is that when you're dealing with the world champion nationals, you've got the Braves, you've got the Phillies, you've got the Mets, and you've got an improved Marlins team. Uh, the American League East is going to have a struggle on their hands. And, of course, you have the Red Sox, you have the Yankees, you have the Rays, uh, you have the Orioles, who, to, you know, in my estimation, are, are the worst of the bunch of both divisions. And I think the Toronto Blue Jays are improved too. So I, I just think that uh, you're going to see maybe as the season goes along here, I don't know what baseball is going to look like at the beginning. Maybe it's going to be a little ragged uh, because of the off time. But I think you're going to see some pretty good baseball out of those two divisions when they come head-to-head this year. How do you like uh, the, the change in the rules as far as, you know, uh, everybody using the DH and they're going to put a guy on second base? I think they're going to do that if the game goes extra innings. I mean, that's going to be a little different. I'm kind of in favor of the DH because I was one at, uh, towards the end of my career. And uh, watching pitchers hit just doesn't thrill me much. Felipe Alou who managed mostly in the National League, I think all in the National League, they asked him about losing the strategy of having a pitcher at the plate. And he said, I'd rather have a hitter out there. I can use more strategy with a hitter. And uh, so he's kind of in favor of the DH. And I think uh, what's going to happen is you're going to see the DH market open up for veteran players uh, to go over to the National League now and help out National League teams. I think in the past they didn't want to use it because it was – Mostly veteran players who came with a pretty hefty price tag, and the owners in the National League, of course, trying to keep the salaries down, uh, wanted the DH uh, not to have the DH in the in the National League. Well, now it's going to be there. Uh, as far as the runners on second base uh, in extra innings, I, I can see that this year. I think depending on how it works, it it, it might go uh, in the, into the future. But I think the, with not wanting games to go 16, 17 innings, and not having the availability of uh, too many players in the minor league systems this year. I know there's going to be a taxi squad, but still, I think uh, I think it's a good thing for this year. And depending on how it works, you might see it in the future. Can I ask a question about that? And, and, and this is going to mm-hmm. sound like sacrilege. I know Bucky's probably going to, you know, put his head in his hands when he hears this. There's <laughs> so in a normal season, there's so many baseball games that each individual game you're conditioned to believe it doesn't necessarily matter that much, you know, at the end of the season, it starts changing. What's wrong with ties? <laughs> What's wrong with saying, okay, this game tied. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, it, uh, you might have to go to a point uh, system. John, you might have to go to John, a point I, I, system. I, 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 I know, Bucky, I know, I know. I don't agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you, Buck. I don't want to go there. I, I've been on a team. No. That's, I've been on a team that's lost the division by one game. And, um, so that shows you the importance of every single game. Uh, that happened in 1982. We had to beat Milwaukee the last four games of the season. We played them at home. We won the first three, and then we lost on Sunday, and they won the division. Mm. And um, that still haunts, that. still haunts me, to, to be honest with you. But I, it, it did serve as an incentive the next year because we won the World Series. And I think a lot of the guys had some soul-searching over the wintertime and thought about the 82 season going into 83. And it just seemed to me we had more problems in 83 with injuries, 
but we weren't going to be stopped. Can, can I can I for one second make my case for it? I, I know uh, I, I know it sounds terrible, but <laughs> first off, there's so many extra inning games that it's not like you, you know. Uh-huh. Ken, to your point, you know it, it was set by one game. Well, there's going to be. It, it's not just one team that's going to tie like in a football season where there's one tie a year and like oh man that that completely changes the standings. The second thing that I love about ties is obviously there wouldn't be ties in the postseason. So you know what I gotta say. If, if we're trying to figure out how to make these games less than five hours, this is a pretty easy way to do it. But then on the flip side, on the flip side of that, all of a sudden you get to the postseason and it's like, oh, my God, no, this game can't end. It's like the NHL postseason all of a sudden where, uh-huh. you know, this overtime goes on forever and it's just agonizing to watch because you're less used to it. Whereas now it's just, you know, we're used to these 16 inning games. They happen a couple times a year. I, I, there's part of me that just feels like give it 11 innings. And if it doesn't, if if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. We'll do it again tomorrow. We're going to do it 161 more times. Well, well John, you could always write a letter. You know, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's my podcast. Yeah. This is this is my letter. <laughs> well, well, I tell you what, playing playing against you guys when you when you were with the Orioles, I say you guys because uh-huh. I always felt, you know, people always said to me, you know, we're talking about winning a division, this, and I said, you know, when I when I played in the American League East. The team that I was always worried about was the Baltimore Orioles because they always made a run in September. They had great defense, they had good pitching, and they had good relievers. And they could hit three-run homers. You know, I mean, that's what Earl wanted you guys to do. Walk two guys and hit a three-run homer. And, you know, but you guys were tough, man. I mean, you know, the the defense, the pitching, I mean, they they were just – you guys made a run at it all the time. In yeah, I played 10 years in Baltimore. We had a winning record every single year. Uh, during those 10 years, we won more games than any other team. We won over 900 games. Made it to the World Series a couple of times. One and one in the World Series. But I will say this, and you talk about Earl Weaver before, he was a little bit ahead of his time because when I got traded to the Orioles, uh, about two days into spring training, he comes up to me and says, uh, you're going to lead off this year. And I said, Earl, I've never done that before in my life. I don't steal bases. He says, that that's not the point. Uh, the point is that you get on base. You walk a lot, and you get on in front of the other guys, and uh, that's what you're going to do this year for me. Well, I, I walked 118 times. It's still a team record. My first time up, we opened in Detroit. I walked. And I went to third on a base hit, and I scored on a three-run homer by Lee May. So I'm, I scored the first run of the season. And I walk into the dugout, Earl takes his finger, puts it in my chest, and he says, that's the hell what I'm talking about. <laughs> Just get on base. And, uh, and uh, you know, I batted first, and Bobby Gritch batted second, and Gritch walked 109 times. So we were like the setup men um, in the uh, batting order and uh, for all the other guys who hit the three-run homers. But in, after that year, Al Bumbry kind of came into uh, his own and, of course, he could run a lot better than I could. And, uh, you know, he would steal 40, 35, 40 bases a year. And you know, I dropped down to basically where I hit uh, for the remainder of my audio career, third, fourth, fifth, or even sixth sometimes, but mostly in the middle of the order. And uh, that's what I was accustomed to in Montreal. You know, when I got traded to Baltimore, I had already had a 100 RBI season. And uh, here I am. I'm told I'm going to lead off. And I'm thinking, man, this guy is really nuts. He doesn't know what he's doing. But um, it, it worked out. It worked out for that year. You know, you guys played so many games against each other over the years, obviously. Ken, we had a chance last year to spend some time talking about 
probably one of the more memorable nights you guys spent around each other. And that was that first series, but also especially that first game back after uh, Thurman's passing. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm interested in just kind of the way that you two, I, I almost wonder if you have the same memories of it or if, if the things that stand out to either one of you might be a little different. Well, it, it was a very sad night, not only for the Yankees, but for all of baseball. I, Thurman was, um, uh, I, to me, he was the, the leader of the Yankees. And um, every spring, John, when we came to spring training, we would always either play in Miami the first exhibition game or in Fort Lauderdale. And before each uh, beginning of each spring training session, when we were getting ready for that game, I would always make a point to say hello to Thurman kind of wish him good luck. And from that point on, it was on, you know, so, uh, no more fraternizing but, after that. Yeah. No, well, yeah. Every <laughs> once in a while, I remember hitting a home run off catfish one night and uh, I came up the next time and he says to me, you hit that last one pretty good, didn't you? I, I, and I said, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to distract me. And then I said, can you have him throw it where he threw that last one? <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, it, it, he was, uh, that particular night, though, I had never seen Yankee Stadium like that. And Bucky remembers it was a real hot night, mm-hmm. uh, very humid. It, it was almost like uh, the stadium was ready to break out in tears rather than, uh, you know, raindrops. It was uh, the fans. It was very somber. Um, uh, that was the night uh, Bobby Mercer drove in five runs. Uh, uh, Gator yeah. pitched, and he pitched pretty yeah. well, although we had the lead. I, I think we were up four to nothing. And I hit a home run. That was the only one I hit off him ever. And um, but Bobby had a big night. And uh, yeah, I remember walking off the field. He had a walk off hit to end the game. The Yankees won five to four. And I'm walking off the field, and I thought to myself, you know, if the Yankees were ever going to beat us a game, let let it be that one. You know, I, I we did have a big lead in the division, and so and we we went to the World Series that year. So I, I it didn't really hurt us that much in the standings. I think we had an eight game lead at the time. And, um, but I remember walking off the field, of course, playing right field. I was probably the last one off the field. And, um, in those days, you know, I, I was from Mount Vernon, so I stayed with my parents and I remember driving home in my dad's old Chevrolet and I was thinking, wow, that, that was just some sort of experience that you would never forget for the remainder of your life. And that, that has proved to be true. Uh, Thurman is, uh, I think, like only three or four days older than I am or, uh, you know, would be. So it's it's been quite a while. But still, it's those memories are still fresh of uh, how that game went and basically what the Yankees had to go through. But like I said, all of baseball, I, I just had so much respect for Thurman and for the Yankees in general, having watched them growing up and just knowing that they, they and the Red Sox – it was a three-team competition every year uh, as to, um, you know, who would actually win the division. And I, I thought that was kind of baseball at its best as far as uh, uh, during my playing careers. Yeah, I um, I remember that game. I, I scored to win a run um, in that game. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, when we took the field, home plate, yeah. they left home plate empty. And the catcher that night that took over was Jerry Narrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, it was you know Jerry. I had forgot that, and then when I was coaching with Jerry, 
uh, in Texas, he reminded me of that, him and Johnny Oates. You know, I said, oh, don't you remember Jerry was the catcher? And I, I completely forgot about that. But that was, an, that was really an emotional night and a, and, a, and a draining night. But it was an electric night also. In, and I was happy for Bobby Mercer because him and, him, him and Thurman were really, really close friends. And he had a big night that night. But uh, yeah. that was a, a game that you, you just don't forget. Over the years, Bobby and I became very close because we worked together in the broadcast booth. He, he was a lot of fun. We went out and shared a lot of dinners together. To, to see him um, develop uh, brain cancer and and eventually pass away from it, it, it was no fun. I, I remember uh, they asked us to uh, do a tribute before, uh, shortly after his death. They, they didn't tell us during the game that he had died. And then after the game, they told us. And then they asked us to do something on camera. And I, I barely could get the words out. And I, I just went over and sat in the corner and cried for about 20 minutes. And people were checking on me. I, I, he, he was a really a good man. I, I just, um, you know, I miss him to this day. Uh, it's yeah, he, yeah. It, it, he, was, it was. He had. Tough. A, he was a. He was a funny guy. You know, I mean, he had. He had this pine tar rag. And he had the best pine tar in the world, but he would never let anybody touch it. I mean, he used to like put this sponge because he used to get like bone bruises on his thumbs, you know, because uh, he'd like jam the bat back in and he'd put this tar on there. On, and I'm telling you what, and you'd say, hey, Bobby, can I use a little tar? No, get your own. You know, I mean, he, he would he would let you get any. And, 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 thir- and actually, Lou Pinella used to bust him all the time you know he says he used to call him the black cloud he says bobby you're the black cloud he says you, you know when you were here before we never won a world series he says you we got rid of you we won two and you're back and we can't win one now in 81 <laughs> <laughs> he used to tease him all the time and i used to just giggle uh they'd go at it on the bus in the wintertime i live in uh, florida so I, I get to see luke quite a bit uh, i played in his golf tournament last year it was a heck of a tournament uh, Bucky, you should, you yeah. should check this. Out. I played. I, I I used to play in his tournament, but I can't, I can't play anymore because I got a bad back. Oh, but, okay. Uh, is he one of the funniest guys in the world? Uh, he's 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 amazing. You know, of course, Lou had played for Earl Weaver in the minor leagues, and he didn't like Earl at all. And you know, I, I've since found this out. He, uh, I don't know if you remember the day at Yankee Stadium. He, he, he tried to charge Earl in the dugout. Oh, wow. Yeah, Earl okay. said something to him while Lou was hitting. And I'm playing left field, and I'm looking in there. Here was Lou charging our dugout. And one thing I noticed right away, nobody went to defend Earl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, I, Lou was one of the fieriest guys, but he was funny. And he used to he used to get on guys all the time. But, you know, going going back to when you play, who who was the toughest pitcher that you you, you had to face? You've, well, if, if anybody has ever watched Yes over the years, and uh, I, I remind Yankee fans that Ron Guidry was just uh, – it was – I had so many problems with him and Gator said, you know, I got a few hits, but it was nothing really. I only hit one home run off him. And, um, it was so bad that I, as I mentioned, I stayed with my parents when we were in New York, whenever Gator was pitching, my dad would say, you know, who's pitching tonight, don't you? And I'd say, yeah, I know. <laughs> Thanks dad. I, I, I said, well, I said, dad, maybe he'll walk me. <laughs> yeah, I can help the team that way. Of course, Gator had good control. He didn't walk many. But I, I think my career batting average against the Yankees was 297 or something like that. 
If it wasn't for Gator, I'd have been a 300 hitter against the Yankees because I think they hit 175 <laughs> against him. And uh, he, he, yeah. I, I tell him that all the time. And over the years, you know, he's in spring training a lot. So I see him. Uh, I see him at the Yogi's tournament. And uh, we've become pretty good friends. But um, back in the day, it was just I knew it was going to be a rough outing. I, I was just trying to keep from striking out three times. You know, John and Al were, were asking me before. He said, "You know, you played against Ken and you've been around him. Did you guys talk much when when you played against each other?" And I go, "We weren't allowed to. Yeah. You know, back then you said hello, and you know, one year I remember when I when I first came up in the league that you weren't allowed to fraternize at all, or because the umpire was sitting in the stands and they would find yeah. you. So it was it was almost like." Hey, how you doing? You know, everything good? Yeah, that's it. And that's about all you said. And you didn't see other teams go on the field and stand by players and 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 and, and talk. You just didn't do that. I mean, it was like a unwritten rule that you didn't talk to the other yeah, team. And and that's the way it was. Even if you had a great buddy on the other team, you just said hello. I'll see you later. You know, and that was about. You it. know, they might have to return to that this year. The way things are. Good <laughs> point. Know, the, good point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's you know the unfortunate. But uh, Bucky's right. Nowadays, you, know, I mean, you see whole teams around the batting cages and everybody's hugging or whatever. But I, I just don't think um, this year, uh, you know, according to what we're going through now with the virus, uh, I, I just hope they can get through the season without too many problems. Uh, and uh, I'd hate to see them start and then have to stop without a conclusion. Uh, because, you know, once it gets past a certain day, it's going to get too cold to play. Uh, unless they're going to move it to a warm weather spot. And I don't see that happening. So uh, th- this is going to be an unusual year. But uh, you're right, Buck. Back in the day, it was I think it was a little more cutthroat, too. I know it was tougher around second base for shortstops and second basemen. You know, nowadays you, you can't go in there the way they do. Uh, they did in the past. And, um, you know, you're trying to keep – once the shortstops and second basemen are making the money they are now, they're trying to keep these guys on the field. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, that's what I said. You know, I was talking to – uh, to some guys, I said, "Man, this game's soft compared to when we played." I said, "They, they don't, you know, they threw the ball at you. You know, if you threw your bat in the air or you showboated, man, Ooh. the next time they'd spin your cap around." And I said, "In second base, it was actually, you know, one of the things that you tried to do to keep your your, you know, if it's a first and third, the guys were going to come down there and try and kill you. Yeah, but you know, who, I mean, who was the guy that you, you, you know, I know you knew who was on first base, but was there anybody in particular?" Oh, there's 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 a few guys. Reggie Jackson was one. Don Baylor was yeah. another one. And and Kirk Gibson, you could hear him coming. Yeah. I mean, he sounded like a train. Yeah, that's... And, and he was big and he could run. But you knew who would come after you. But uh, I I didn't mind guys sliding hard at me. I could get out of the way. I just didn't like people rolling at me. Yeah. Because you could get you couldn't get up and get over them very easy. And I, I didn't like that. And Hal McRae hit me one night. Um, he kind of ran out of the baseline. John Mayberry was hitting, and I was playing behind second. And he kind of ran out of the baseline. I said, oh, okay, and I threw the ball. And the next thing I know, I was picking myself up behind second base. <laughs> he came back in and roadblocked me. And I was like, oh, my God, I'll never let that happen again. You know, it's um, funny. The first three guys you mentioned were all football players in the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Another guy, I mean, a big Dave Winfield. Yeah. Ooh, man. 
I mean, some of them guys, they come down there, they, they come down there to tear you up. Yeah, I wasn't fast yeah. enough to get to you, Buck. <laughs> <laughs> well, you talk about Bobby Gritch. One night, I come across a bag, and, I, and Gritch didn't slide. He's standing up, and I threw the ball right at his head. And he moved his head, and the ball went by. And, and, and we turned the double play, and we came out the next inning. And, and I said, Bobby. What the hell are you doing? I said, I, I, I almost hit you in the head. He goes, well, I was trying to get you to hit me, and I moved. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, he wanted to break up the double play, you know, but he, he was trying to get me to hit him. It's amazing. Man, you know, you, I, I you mean, hear stories like this, and it makes me feel ridiculous for wanting there to be ties in baseball, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what kind of hobbies you do now? You know you're a pretty good golfer. You a scratch golfer uh, now? I wouldn't call it scratch, but uh, I, I play as much as I can. Uh, I live here in Maryland. I play a lot with uh, Bunbury and Ross Grimsley, uh, Scott McGregor. Uh, those are, those are kind of my golfing buddies. And uh, you know, we get our foursomes, and you know, we start telling stories. And we're better ball players now than we were then. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, especially but, uh, on the golf course. Mostly, it's it's playing golf with the guys. Uh, then I go down to Florida in the wintertime, and I play with uh, Mike Torres, and uh, I hang out with Mike and his wife and my wife and I, we, we do things together and uh, we go to festivals and do things like that. You know, I got three grandkids now, so uh, they live in New Jersey, which is about a two hour drive from us here in Maryland. And I'll go up and watch my grandson play uh, football, basketball, or baseball. Uh, now this time of year, it's baseball. They're, they're, they're letting their league start up again. They didn't let them play earlier in the year, but now they're starting to play again. And my middle son is actually the coach of the team and uh, he played in the Blue Jays system and got his highest AAA before he decided to retire and become a businessman. He's done really good business, really well. So um, uh, he made a good decision. Although uh, I, I will say this, I'll tell you this story. And it's kind of a heartbreaking story. Uh, Justin was injured. He hurt his knee and had to go on the, uh, at that time, the disabled list. And when I went to Toronto to do some games, John Gibbons was the manager and he called me over and he says, uh, Ken, I'm really sorry that Justin got hurt. I said, yeah, you know, he's hurting right now, but, he, you know, he'll bounce back. He says, no, I'm really sorry. We were getting ready to call him up to the big leagues. Oh, and, boy. Uh, oh man. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, oh, my God. And after that year, just decided he wanted to go into business. And like I said, he's done really well. Well, it's nice to hear, you know, for people who, you know, I have a, a son who's a very ambitious baseball player. He's a good baseball player. Uh -huh. He's 12 years old. But I, I, we emphasize all the time, like your, your dreams are, you know, smart to be very diverse and not just related mm -hmm. to sports because it truly is yeah more than one in a million and you think about you know something like that where there's disappointment in not making maybe the the most sexy career choice i guess but you know he's probably more successful based on the the fateful things that happened and i think that's a, yeah. it's actually kind of a cool story to hear to be honest with you yeah like i said he's done really well in business and you know it's uh, my grandson, between he and I, between Justin and myself, we should be able to turn him into a pretty good ball player. He's uh, he's a quarterback in football, he's a point guard in basketball, and he's a shortstop and pitcher in baseball. So, wow, their their town actually has a draft. Their little league has a draft, and uh, he called me one day over the winter and says, "Papa Ken, guess what?" I, I said, "Jax, his name is Jackson." I said, "Jax, what's up?" He says, "We had the draft today." 
guess who was overall number one pick? And I said, you wouldn't be calling me if it wasn't you, would you? <laughs> and, uh, of course, it was him. So um, It was Terry from across the street. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So, so tell me, are you getting ready to retire? Is this going to be your last year? You know, Buck, that's a good question because it was going to be. Um, but the way it, it kind of reminded me of a, a few years ago when Mariano was going to retire, then he tore his ACL and he said, I can't go out like this. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if they want me to come back for one more year, I, I, I will come back. You didn't tear your ACL in the broadcast booth, so. No, I yeah. didn't. Uh, but there are certain cities. <laughs> there were certain cities that I wanted to see for the last time, and it's, it wasn't going to happen. My parents were married in Seattle, so I always liked going to Seattle. It's a beautiful city. The yeah, only it problem with it, it's too far away. But and some of the other right. guys don't like going out there because of that. But I'll go. And although a lot of guys don't like going to Oakland because it's a crappy stadium. Uh, I'll go. I mean, Oakland's a good team, and plus the Yankees stay in San Francisco, and that's a beautiful city. I think one of the best in the country. So if things are back to normal next year and we can travel to all these places uh, and uh, they will have me back, which uh, they're they're pretty good about that uh, with the ass, I I would definitely do it. We need to keep guys like you in the game, man. I, I love listen. I love listening to you, and I love playing against you. You know, you were always just uh, a class guy, and Thank you. Uh, I, I loved. Uh, I loved uh, you know talking baseball with you, and I just want to. Thank you for, for coming on and sharing all those memories with us. And uh, that's what we're trying to make this show about, just talking baseball and telling old stories and, and uh, you know, getting all the good days and that we had, try to get some good memories out of them. Well, if you need any more Earl Weaver stories, you know where to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Because there's millions of them. <laughs> yeah. I've been, I've been trying to get Lou on, but I think he's in his fishing boat all the time. Oh, out he, in the he ocean. took Mike Torres he, out and Mike sent me pictures. They called these grouper they looked like uh, they both had to hold them they were so big and i think they went like <laughs> oh, 20 miles out mm-hmm. to the gulf and uh you know i'm not a fisherman you know i i, I kind of like being on land but um but you know they, they might convince me to go i did a i did a fishing trip with lou in the gulf there for and fish for grouper as well we didn't catch as many but he took me to a great restaurant for lunch and we ate grouper there so <laughs> that, that i remember yeah. as much as as being out on the uh it was it was in the middle of the summer and i think it was about 90 99 degrees outside and wow. we had a couple beers and had a good time out there despite not catching as many groupers as mike torres but he is he is fun to be around that's for sure yeah you gotta go, you gotta go with him i want to say to bucky i i you know people ask me what it was like playing back in the day back in the 70s and i i do feel that uh, our generation of players uh, were the best. And I, I say that because we had a lot of labor strife back in the days. I was part of uh, three strikes and two lockouts, and we all stuck together. And we kind of set it up for the players now, all the benefits they have now. I think it was our group of guys who really set all that up. And uh, I, I just want to thank Bucky uh, for you know being one of the leaders on the Yankees. And everybody kind of stuck together as far as uh, – you know, the, the union was concerned and uh, the players now are the beneficiaries of that. And that's why I think we had the best generation, not only because it was good baseball, but uh, uh, just the fact that we kind of stuck together as a group. Well, I, I, I totally agree with you and I thank you for the compliment. And Kenny, 
Thanks so much for coming on, buddy. Uh, I, you know, like I said, uh, you're one of the top-notch class guys that I played against. And, uh, you know, keep doing what you're doing. And I, I hope you stay on for another 10 years, man, because I love listening well, to you. Well, I don't know if it's going to be that long. Maybe at least one more, though. <laughs> yeah, looking forward to see you, Ken. Okay, my Good pleasure. luck, man. All right, bye-bye. Well, I tell you what, amazing stories. And I've always thought he was one of the underrated players uh, that I played against in, in my whole career. I mean, just a guy that really could do it all. Power from both sides of the plate, you know, just a class guy, great throwing arm. And, uh, you know, I really enjoy him on the broadcast. And I'm so glad we had a chance to get him on today. You know, Bucky, you know him as a competitor and a friend and all these things. You know, a lot of us, we only really know him as a broadcaster. And, you spend so much time listening to these guys that you think you kind of know them, but it turns out, obviously, in the real world, not everyone is the way they are when the microphone is on. Every experience I've ever had with Ken is that he is exactly as just positive and upbeat and happy and genuine a person as he comes off on those broadcasts, and I think we saw that over the last hour here. I agree with you, John. I, I, I've had the same type of experiences with him. Just such a class act. Bucky, you called him that a couple times you know, on this episode, and... I can't imagine a better, you know, phrase to describe him with. I mean, he's just a class act um, and it and it's not fake. It's real. I laugh sometimes because for a younger generation of people, he's he's been such a presence as part of the broadcast team of the New York Yankees that there's a lot of people, I think, that identify him almost as a, you know, a member of the Yankees and not the Baltimore Orioles. You kind of sometimes have to remind yourself that he had an amazing career with another team and, and before, you know, all the great things he did uh, contributing to the game as a broadcaster. I totally agree. And, um, you know, he was just one of those quiet guys that you played against that you, you always admired and you hate to see him come up in, in clutch situations because he always had a way of beating you. Well, he definitely came up clutch here, as did you, Bucky. Bucky, Al, thank you guys so much. That was another great episode, I think. That's 10 in the books for us. And I, I hate to, you know, get too far ahead of ourselves, but, you know, here we are. It's uh, July 7th, and the next one of these we do, we're just hopefully, you know, cross fingers, that much closer to baseball. And it just, uh, God, you know, it's been, there have been so many things that have been difficult. <laughs> over these last few months and obviously you know all of us have been pretty lucky we've had it easy but you know each little thing like this hopefully getting to talk baseball and getting to see baseball it sure does feel good yeah i can't wait till they say play ball guys let's go that's for sure well thank you so much guys and everyone else thank you for listening to another episode of deep to left with bucky dent we will be back with you in two weeks in the meantime by all means go check out the other podcast on the yankees magazine podcast network the yankees magazine podcast you can find it at yankees.com slash magazine our most recent episode had me chatting with mlb.com's brian hoke and mark feinsand who gave their updates on what to expect from I guess we're calling it summer camp or spring training, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, you can always find great information there about the stuff that we're doing in the magazine. So I hope you'll subscribe. You can follow us on Twitter at Yanks Magazine. You can write to us at podcast at Yankees.com. Tell us what you want to hear on this podcast. Ask any questions you have for Bucky, anything like that. And of course, you know, we hope you'll subscribe to Yankees Magazine. Go to Yankees.com slash publications or call 800-GO-YANKS. Hey, this is Giancarlo Stan. If you like what you're hearing, why don't you rate and review us? And while you're at it, tell your friends to subscribe. Thanks so much, and go Yankees.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 